And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Michelle Norris is a familiar voice to millions of Americans as the longtime award-winning host of NPR's All Things Considered. In that role, she launched the Race Card Project, asking people to write about race in just six words. The results have been nothing short of astonishing. I sat down with Michelle recently to talk about what she's learned and what she discovered about her own family's journey along the way. Michelle Norris, it's so great to see you. It is so good to be with you. And thank you for coming to the Institute of Politics. You are very welcome. Good to be back here in Chicago. So we've been friends for a long time, but these uh, exercises give me a chance to learn more about people who I thought I knew. Let's just talk about your story. Sure. Uh, Minneapolis, Mm -hmm. you you were raised there. Tell me about your folks well, it's interesting that you asked me that question here in Chicago. Yes. Because my, my father is originally from Birmingham. Yes. And as so many people did, he migrated north to Chicago with all five of his brothers. In fact, all six of them lived just off Midway Plaisance. Wow. When they came here to Chicago. So this is ground zero yeah, right here. Yeah, And they used to take fabulous pictures and send them back to their family. Um, at Brown Studio, which is also not far from here, which is where... The, um, the people of migration would go and take pictures, even if they worked with their hands or wore uniforms for the day, they would get dressed up and send those pictures back. And I'm thankful that I have them. And one of his brothers moved north to Minneapolis, where they both met women that they married. And I was raised in Minneapolis. But I would come to Chicago all the time because I had four uncles that still lived here. Let's talk for a little bit about why they moved. You wrote a wonderful book back in 2010 called mm-hmm. The Grace of Silence. And it started off as an exploration of other people's stories and wound up as an exploration of right. your own. You learned something about your father, I guess in talking to one of his brothers, yeah. that you didn't know that was sort of central to the story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you got it right, David. I, I wanted to write a book about how Americans were talking and thinking about race because we were talking about America entering this post-racial moment. You remember that conversation? Yes, I do. Back in 2006, 2007. And yet everywhere I was going, I I was encountering people having, you know, really animated and interesting conversations about race. So my idea was to go out in the world and chronicle that, get out of Studio 2A at NPR and go and listen to people have these conversations. And what happened is when I would meet with the older members of my family, these stories were starting to bubble to the surface. And that conversation that you referenced with my uncle happened here in Chicago at a restaurant called The Egg and I downtown. And we were talking. He was in such a bad mood that day because he had been doing work on the South Side trying to register people to vote. You know, one of the people who was so charged up by the candidacy of Barack Obama, you know, another son of Chicago. And he was so mad because he was having to work so hard to try to get young people to register to vote. Yeah. And and we're sitting at this restaurant, and I'm eating something. Isn't that, let me just interrupt you. Isn't that, it's so interesting to me because those who lived through mm-hmm. the battle for fundamental rights in, ni- in the 1950s and 60s and the right to vote and uh, watched people beaten and killed 
for that right. In my experience, that's where the exasperation comes from. Uh, people fought so hard to get it, and then if you can get it simply by registering, one ought to do that. But why would you have to be convinced? You know, when people literally fought, died, were met with violence for the simple act of trying to register to vote. And, and you know, and this is something that you, met, you referenced the 50s and the 60s. You know, this was, I mean, the story I learned that day reaches back to the 40s. Yes. And, you know, and how soldiers were central to the get out the vote effort in the 1940s. And we often don't really talk about that. That's something that's not well known. And I'm ashamed to say I didn't know a lot about the central role of soldiers in um, the right to vote. And what I had learned that day is that my uncle told me that my father had been shot while trying to enter a building in Birmingham, Alabama, just days after he had returned from his military service in 1946. And you know when you say something to someone and you immediately regret it? You could, you could see that he wanted to roll back the tape and take the words back. Why didn't they want you to know? That was a central part of my journey, my journey in writing the book, is trying to figure out why they never talked about it. Because I didn't know my father had been shot. You know, he had a scar on his leg. He walked with an affect um, that was really, really, really gentle. And to me, and all my uncles kind of had a little bit of a stroll in their walk. They called it having English in their walk in the way that um, men of color often do. And I thought that that was just a, just a little bit more of his style of gliding through the world. But he never told me. He never told my mother. You know, imagine that. In, in all the years of marriage, intimacies of marriage, he never told her. And yet, once I started picking up the phone and calling my cousins and calling my second cousins and calling people in Alabama and calling the diaspora people who had wound up here in Chicago, some of them are in Indiana, a few of them are in Detroit, it turns out that there was an older generation. They all knew about it. They all knew about it. And they just didn't talk about it. And they didn't tell the younger generation. And I think in answer to your question, David, is that they didn't want to burden us. That in order for us, they had such high hopes for us. And in order for us to move forward, they didn't want to, and this is what, this is what just blows my mind. They didn't want us, they didn't want us burdened, but it's almost like they didn't want us to be angry at a country that never gave them the respect that they deserved. And that's why I use the word grace in the title of the book, because that's something that's hard to imagine, you know, in, in today's moment. And and my family's not unique in this. You know, that happened to people who faced persecution overseas. That happened to people who um, were in internment camps. There's something that happens where a family will go through some sort of collective amnesia to give their next generation the gift of hope. And that is an incredible incredibly graceful act that at times I wonder if I'm capable of, you know, because I think our DNA is ordered a little bit differently in the age of social media where we complain about so many things. We yes. live in a culture of complaint. Yes, yes. And, and they, they didn't. You know, that's another aspect of that greatest generation that they, part of it was survival. You know, they just decided not to look backwards on that pain. But I think part of it was a collective swell of hope. Like, we want to give them something better. And in order to give them something better, they have to feel a certain anticipation and an optimism, you know, about a world. And a world that they only could imagine because they didn't see it, right? They, yeah. had, they, they had, in order to imagine that world, they had to give um, the next generation optimism. And I, I think that there's actually a lesson in this moment for that because we we don't talk perhaps enough about utopian ideas and 
giving the next generation optimism at a, at a moment, at a, at a sort of dark and difficult moment in America. Um, and yes, I, there, there I think is we a, need that. This is a uh, despairing time, and, and you're right. We're sitting here at the Institute of Politics, and one of the reasons I so enjoy being here is that these young people are filled with, mm-hmm. uh, with a sense of commitment to make the future better. And you get the sense when you are confronted with their energy and their idealism that they can make the future better. And so I go home encouraged every day, time when a lot of people can't say that. Yeah. Uh, it so must be wonderful to sip from that well every day. It right is. Now. It is. So another character in your life was your maternal grandmother. First of all, tell me about your mom. And then let's talk about your grandmother, because that's another interesting parable, her journeys. Mm -hmm. Well, another secret. My father moved to Minneapolis. Um, My Uncle Jimmy lived here in Chicago and was friendly with most of the Norris boys, Norris men, and particularly close to my father and my Uncle Woodrow. And they went to Minneapolis, because that's where my Uncle Jimmy was from. He'd moved here to Chicago. When they got to Minneapolis, they loved it. It Minneapolis has long been known as um, a place of tolerance. They could move freely about the city in a way that they couldn't in Chicago. And my father met Jimmy's sister, Betty, my mother, and that was it. And my uncle um, also met someone, and uh, my uncle's wife, his eventual wife, was is a white woman, Audrey. And Minneapolis was attractive for them because at that time it was illegal to live as husband and wife in a mixed marriage. And I think it was 17, 18 yeah. states where it was still illegal, yeah. pre-loving, before yes. the Supreme Court loving decision. So Minneapolis um, actually had a large community of people who moved there for that but reason. But Minneapolis or the greater community mm-hmm. didn't prove as tolerant for your family as perhaps they had hoped. They confronted the same forces that consume the country as a whole when they moved into a predominantly white neighborhood. Yeah. They moved, they were the first black family to move south of what, you know, the line kept shifting further and further and further south. And they moved south of um, 48th Street, and we were the first black family on the block. And as I write in the book, when we moved into the neighborhood, every family whose property line touched ours immediately put their house up for sale. And, you know, and as we lean into that and, and understand that, it's really interesting the role, you know, here at the Institute of Politics, the role the government played in that. So even if you supported integration in the abstract or as an idea, the fact is that a single black family moving into your neighborhood, would your, your, your property values would plummet. A single black family moving into the neighborhood would mean that your FHA rating would drop. And that was, you know, part of the impetus behind redlining in communities mm-hmm. was um, was just racial animus. But part of it also was a reaction to government policy. And so when they moved in the neighborhood, it, it really created a lot of tumult, social tumult in that community. But by the time I came along, that had changed. I mean, my mother, my mother tells this great story that when the houses were not for sale, there was the, the neighbors, unfortunately, next to us, directly next to us didn't move fast enough. And so they couldn't sell their house. And it was hard because people would literally put a sign up on the for sale sign, Negroes live next door. And and my, my mother has, her name is Betty, and she has a great sense of humor. And 
so when people would go and look at the house next door, she could sort of time it. And she knew they'd walk through the front of the house, and the houses are all kind of the same in the way they're built. And um, they'd get through the living room and the dining room, and they'd go in the kitchen. And usually when they go in the kitchen, there's a beautiful, all the houses had deep lots and beautiful backyards. So she would time it. So if she knew that someone was going through the house, she would send my sisters out in the back, backyard to play. So they knew when they got to that beautiful kitchen window that they would see two brown girls in the backyard. And my mother would say, showtime. And she'd send the kids out, or either she'd go out herself. And she was pregnant with me. And so that they would see that, you know, a third brown child was on the way. And they never were able to sell that house. And so the second black family moved into that house because they couldn't sell it to a white family. And Mm. the Gossets moved in next door. And Mae Gossett was like, an aunt to me. Um, her, she and her husband Sal became very close to my mother and father. But what's interesting, David, is it shows the elasticity of, of America. Because by the time I was old enough to have friends and play kickball in the neighborhood and ride my banana seat bike up and down the street, the neighborhood had integrated. And many of the people who became friends of my parents and whose whose children became very close friends of mine, were opposed to this Negro family moving in to mm-hmm. the neighborhood. But once they met them, it's it's like um, Michelle Obama in her book, Becoming, says it's hard to hate up close. They hated the idea of a black family moving in. But when we moved in and they saw the way that we took care of our home, they saw the way that we comported ourselves, they saw, you know, everyday upstanding citizens and realized they're not that different than us. and And something changed in them. But... They had given in to this idea that Negroes didn't know how to take care of their property. They were not as strong or upstanding or as intelligent as perhaps they were, and they they needed to meet someone up close to see that that just was not true. You use this phrase, model minority, that your parents set out to be model minorities. And this is related to the point you were just making, their sensitivity, that they were not going to play into cultural right. stereotypes. So they in a sense, overcorrected. Your dad, Belvin Norris, a junior, Mm -hmm. he was a postal worker, but he dressed to the nines when, you know, you had plants and flowers and you were, you know, the Nelsons. This is a reference that only people of a certain generation. I remember. (laughs) Only only people of a certain generation. I'm looking at my young engineer, Samantha, here, and she's like, who are the Nelsons? What What are they talking about? But anyway, so they were very conscious of this and really tried to push back against the really pernicious caricatures. I have mixed feelings about that. Um, I I know I benefited in some way from that, but that's a burden. It is. Yes, it is. burden, you know? I mean, my father loved his rose garden. You referenced his... and. And it was a thing. People in the neighborhood would come every year and look at the variety of roses that he grew in the backyard. And my mother was a big gardener, too. And we had, you know, my parents were postal workers. Um, we were working class family, but we had like beautiful curtains. My mom was a seamstress. I mean, from the outside, the house just looked perfect all the time. And we, you know, we were, we didn't have a lot of money, but we looked fantastic every time we left you know the house and that's wonderful if that is really if your only reason you're doing it it is is to represent but it is it is a it is a tremendous burden and and underneath that is is you know a thick layer of calcified anger that is sort of glossed over with a veneer of perfection yeah and and that's one of the ways that they and it relates to you know the story you asked about my grandmother 
You know, when she, what one of the things that I learned from my mother, her secret that yes, she never shared, yes. was that her mother, my my grandmother, Ione Brown, um, worked as a traveling Aunt Jemima. You know, for a lot of people. To promote the pancakes. To promote, you know, convenience cooking was new at that moment, brand new. We weren't cooking out of boxes. We didn't have refrigerators full of hot pockets and things like that. And so she went out into the world trying to convince a generation of women to use a boxed pancake mix. And this was built around Quaker Oats, owned and the Angemima brand. It was one of the largest advertisers in all of America. And it turns out that my grandmother was part of an army of women. Who knew? Who knew that there was an army of women who went out into the world to do these pancake demonstrations at Rotarian breakfasts and county fairs and and you know places where people gathered and my mother my grandmother had um, a region that included Minnesota the Dakotas Iowa Wisconsin and Michigan and she would travel to these places and again the trope of the model minority emerges because she dressed up as Aunt Jemima and this blew my mind because my grandmother was extremely well-dressed all the time and also was a seamstress and always presented in the world in, you know, in such a beautiful, resplendent way. So the idea of her dressing up in rags, you know, as Aunt Jemima, and, and Samantha here is probably wondering, you know, Aunt, the Aunt Jemima you see on the pancake mix today, you know, a younger you generation. Get an education here, <laughs> looks, um, you know, looks like someone you would encounter at Macy's. You know, she's very modern and she's mm-hmm. got a modern hairdo and pearls and Andromeda didn't used to look like that you know right. she looked like a slave woman and so when my grandmother went out in the world um it was a very well-paying job and that was the stage that was available to her and she would go out in the world dressed up as Andromeda but I actually found stories about her work and talked to people who remembered and found other people whose family members worked as Aunt Jemima's. And she was one of them who refused to speak in the slave patois. They gave them a script. And she was supposed to sound like a slave woman. And so she was supposed to say, you know, lousy, lousy, people sure do love my pancakes. And she would just not speak like that. And so she said that she would go out and she would speak. Um, and my, my grandmother had won awards, oratory awards as a child. I mean, she she diction was very important to her and she would go out in the world and speak like that and she would sing gospel songs because she wanted them to know that she was a woman of god and she would focus on young children in particular and we found yeah. pictures of her with she's kids. probably in some of the places she traveled the first black person exactly people had seen and she was a celebrity when she'd roll into town you know, people would come from far and wide to see. Angemine was a big deal for a while in yeah. America. There was a Disney World until the 1960s had like a huge Angemine pancake house yeah. that people would stand in long lines, you know, to go see. And um, and that's the reason that she focused on children, David, is because she, she thought if they could see uh, a woman of color, well-spoken, who comported herself in a graceful and confident way that that might live inside them in some way. It's interesting how your family had to navigate all of this. And sort of there is an implicit degradation that they refuse to embrace, but to have to overcorrect for people's awful, pernicious, racist caricatures to find a dignified way to navigate them. But here's the thing. 
The work that I do now through the Race Guard Project has showed me that that is not at all unique, that there are people who came from Lithuania and Italy and Japan and Mexico and Guatemala and Poland and you name it. And they came and they, even though they perhaps didn't see themselves as minorities, they still were modeling in the quest to become this idea of what it meant to be American, you know, so still as a kid say representing in some way showing, you know, the Irish coming to America, not being treated very well when they first came here, but quickly matriculated into, into whiteness. But on the way there, you know, had to, had to prove that they belied the stereotype. Stereotypes are often very ugly. I'm the son of a, uh, I've said this a million times here, the son of an immigrant from Eastern Europe. So I know exactly what you're speaking of. The difference, of course, is that they came of their own volition. <laughs> they weren't brought here right. and, and the enslaved. And, you know. and one of the differences also, I'm sorry to interrupt you, David. No, is I, that, I think I interrupted you. Yeah, but but <laughs> it's a good con- that means it's a good conversation, right? <laughs> um, the difference for many immigrants who came from Europe is that there was a, a, a category of, of whiteness that they could blend into that then came with certain privileges and mm-hmm. um, advantages yes. that no matter how much you modeled, you still marked a box that over time said colored, Negro, right. black, yes. African-American, yes. whatever it was. And because of that, often, sometimes by social custom, but so, but often by law, it meant that your opportunities in the world were limited, no matter how well you modeled perfection yeah, exactly. to the outside world. Exactly. Um, let me just talk a little bit about your journey, and I want to get to the race card mm. project, which I think is astonishing in many ways. Thank you. Um, I, I was surprised to learn. I know you, you were a, a journalist as a child writing stories <laughs> about your neighbors, which sounds like an extortion racket to me. Yeah, it pretty much By the story that Cute I just kid. wrote about you. <laughs> Knocks at the door, please buy my story for five cents. <laughs> but... Uh, you first went off to the University of Wisconsin, and you were studying electrical and electronics engineering, which seems pretty far afield from where you ended up. How did you drift there from the young extortionist journalist that you were? <laughs> I was, I was, a, I was a, I was a good student. In my household, there there was no option <laughs> but to be a good student. And that was again the modeling, um, and I liked science a lot, and I was really good at math. And there was um, my parents, my parents, they, they, they gave the world to us. And if there was an opportunity, they found it. You know, if there were classes that were offered on the weekends, um, they found it. If there was a free program for this, you know, we'd get on the bus and they'd find it. And so at an early age, I took a lot of, I participated in a lot of art programs through Minneapolis as, you know, fantastic, really rich and robust cultural community. And the university communities also had really wonderful programs on the weekends in the summers um, for kids, and a lot of them for minority kids in particular. And I developed a real interest um, and affinity, and I guess acumen for science and math, and was recruited in a program that was aimed at feeding a pipeline um, of of minority kids into engineering programs. And I did that willingly, and I went to class on Saturdays, and I you know, marched off. So the why didn't you stick with it? I didn't. You know, I look back and I. I used to have an easy answer for that. I said I just didn't like it. I wasn't very good at it, and I wasn't very good at it because I didn't apply myself. 
But in reality, I was also really lonely. You know, I was the only woman in many of my classes. I was usually the only woman of color. And I, I just was not happy. And when you're not happy, you, ju- you usually don't perform. Yeah. I actually was really interested in the work, but it just, I just wasn't, you know, thriving in that mm-hmm. space. And a, a dean, you know, said, why don't you just take a semester and take classes that you like? And if, if you wind up not graduating on time, we'll figure it out. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll make sure that you, you know, don't leave school. And, um, and I took a semester of classes. I took political science and I took, you know, English classes. And I went from, you know, not doing great to making the dean's list, you know, becoming a straight A student and, or something close to a straight A student. And, and that, and I was happy, you know, I found my bliss and I realized how much I really enjoyed writing. And so then I had to go back to my parents and explain that I was changing my major to journalism. And they, they, they were not happy, not happy at all. But at the same time, they had great respect for journalism. And, you know, a line item in our family budget was the New York Times. And we, and it wasn't delivered. They had to go to Schinder's Downtown, which is a big newsstand on Hennepin Avenue in downtown Minneapolis, and they would buy the Sunday paper. It was next to a big fish market. The Star Tribune wasn't good enough? We, we got the Star and Tribune delivered, um, and they would, but they get the Sunday paper, and they would read it all week long. You know, they'd read the book section. My mom loved the book section. My dad, my dad, you know, loved Kiplinger and, and kind of, as a postal worker, had dreams of playing the stock market, so he'd read the business section, and... So they understood. They listened to NPR at home. You know, mm-hmm. the radio was always on. So they understood journalism, but they weren't exactly happy about me leaving a line of study where a job would be waiting for me on the other end. Right. And they just didn't understand Understood. how I would make my way in journalism. And they came around, and they, you know, my dad is now gone, but my um, very supportive of of my, you know, life as a as a journalist and a storyteller. I forgot to mention that your mother gave you a note when you set out for college, mm-hmm. and that note had a quotation from Eleanor Roosevelt. Yeah. And what was that quotation? No one can make you feel inferior without your consent. And what did that mean to you? Did you what, what did you take from that when you opened up the paper and read what she wrote? Well, it's interesting because mom was, <laughs> when I went to college, the football game was on, and my mom's a big football fan, Minnesota Vikings fan. And so she was trying to listen to the end of the football game and hands me the note. And, you know, so it wasn't, it sounds like it's this poignant goodbye. And she's like, oh, by the way, I wrote a note for you, but I got to listen to the end of the game here. Um, that's, that's, so that's, Alan that's Page, my mom. The, Al- the <laughs> Alan Page era? Yeah. Or, yeah. But, you know, it was my, it was my mother messaging to me that you have control, that people will try to make you feel inferior. And, you know, maybe it's because you're black, maybe it's because you're woman, but that's just life. And you have control over that. You can decide whether you're going to internalize that or whether it will be like, you know, roll off your shoulders like Teflon. Mm -hmm. And that was from her own experience. And, um, you know, my parents were big on writing notes. At one point, they gave me another note. Um, It was a quote from, from Booker T. Washington. Demonstrated excellence in a demanding field is the best antidote to racism, Mm -hmm. which was just like, just keep your head down and do your work yeah. and, and, and be good at what you do, no matter what it is. That is the best way to, again, that's, that's that model minority thing. You know, yeah. again. In a sense, when Barack Obama ran for president, you know, there was pressure on him to be a model minority. 
Uh, and I always was aware of how much pressure that was. It wasn't good enough to be good. He needed to be excellent, and he knew it, and he knew that people were going to be judging him in a different way. I mean, we never, he never really articulated yeah. it that way, but it was clear. That was a, an additional burden, uh, and I thought he, you know, he handled it incredibly well. But I always felt he, he felt like he was carrying not just his own destiny on his shoulders, but that there were a lot of young people uh, who were looking at him and needed him to succeed and needed him to excel. And I appreciated how hard that, that is. And how lightly he wore it. Yes. How lightly he wore it. I mean, it explains why so many people were slow to come to his candidacy, even people of color, because there's this notion that if he would fall and skin his knee, everybody else would bleed. This is so interesting because we're sitting now just a few weeks before the Iowa caucuses. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember that night. We, I remember I, we, I was talking to you on the radio that night. Yes. You know, yeah. and we, we all knew that uh, because we, you know, we were talking to African-American voters in South Carolina and elsewhere. Hillary Clinton had a huge lead on us. Do, with do you remember that picture? Do you remember that picture right before the Iowa caucuses? There was this picture that I remember so well where she's phalanxed by like 75 um, members of the clergy uh-huh. in, in South Carolina. And they're standing strong behind her. And it was, you know, obviously released to send a message. But within probably a month after winning Iowa, yes. that, that they had drifted enthusiastically into the Obama Those camp. voters needed evidence that he could succeed, that this country would embrace an African-American candidate uh, and, uh, and that he, he, he had a chance to succeed. Uh, the, what we heard so often were fears that he would stumble, as you say, fears for his safety, mm-hmm. which honestly, um, you know, I and others shared but rarely talked about. You know what's interesting, David, though? You talk about the burden. The additional burden was being perfect while also being authentic. You know, that that's because usually perfection is a little staid and little little too stiff. And I think that was a special skill that he had, the yeah. idea that they they were perfect in the way that they tried to present themselves to the world, loving family, um, you know, committed to social causes, stellar academic record, but at the same time kind of loose-limbed enough so that, that – People didn't see a sort of stiff. It, it, it wasn't. It wasn't like this one-dimensional cardboard mm-hmm. cutout. Absolutely, positively. We're going to take a short break. Stay tuned for more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. You've been traveling uh, with uh, Michelle Obama around her book, Becoming. I, I understand it's been relatively successful. Yeah, a little um, bit. Little bit. <laughs> but uh, every, every author says with time. a bit of envy. Uh, <laughs> you know, one of my observations of her is how hard she was on herself, how much she demanded of herself how unhappy she'd be if she didn't feel like she had made her mark and how unhappy she'd be at us if we if she felt like we hadn't prepared her properly 
for what was going to happen. And I think this is all related. You well, know. you know, I don't, I don't know if I would say unhappy. I think she had, she has very high standards. Yes, and and what one of the many interesting things about her memoir and in in its extreme candor, I mean, it is an unusual political memoir where people are um, that unguarded, you know, in talking about the things that she chose to talk about in the book about, um, you know, the the battle to have children. Um, about marriage counseling. Marriage counseling. Yeah. You know, who writes about that? Yeah. Uh, but she did because she wanted to bring people inside her life and show that what you saw on the outside looked like perfection, but behind it was a lot of work. And one of the things that she talked about in on tour several times in several, she's in 35 different cities, and I think in you know about four or five of those cities, she told a story uh, about leaving on the last day in the White House. And I know she told that story here in Chicago when she was interviewed by Oprah Winfrey the very first night of the book tour and how there was just open weeping on the plane. And behind that was just the release. And she said, we were perfect for eight years. We had to be perfect for eight years. And that's so hard. Yeah, You know, we think of the White House and being president and being the first family as this, you know, uh, unalloyed gift uh, you know, you live in this gilded world, you have your own airplane, you are a celebrity, you commune with celebrities, you see the world, and so on. But the sacrifices really go unnoticed. You know, I know that she was really a conscript to this whole project. She had a very, she had established herself professionally here in Chicago. She had a solid core of friends and a life that she. Uh, loved and felt her children were well situated and had to uproot and had to raise her children and her children had to live under the glare of you know global attention that is not easy and she and, did it yeah. you know she gave them relatively normal lives under yes. the glare of the global spotlight relatively and- i think she she would acknowledge that it you know it, they they did as well as you could do and the Kids came out great, and hey, kudos they, to, they to her, Mrs. And, Robinson, yes, yes. Uh, and others. But, um, but you know, a ch- when you're a child and you go on a field trip and people at, to a museum with your class and people start taking pictures of you instead of the exhibits, uh, you know, that separates you from the group. Mm-hmm. Uh, in ways that are really discomforting, and you know, no, I I'm, I so admire the way. Uh, she handled it, but I, I don't want anybody to think that. I think that they appreciated the opportunities that they had and that their kids had. But we should also appreciate what goes along with that, and this burden to be perfect, right. to be, you know, model minorities and model models for the country. And yeah, they they pulled it off really well. And, really and I, well. I I so respect what she did with the book in explaining that, yeah, and explaining how she had to earn her grace. And, you know, first ladies don't often get a lot of attention. And she helped people understand that when you arrive in that building there, you know, she talked to the other first ladies, but there's no there's no binder that you get that yes. says this is how you should conduct yourself, you know, for the next four, or if you're lucky, eight years. I, I always used to say that she was going to end up saving more lives than any of us who worked in that administration through the things that she was doing, her work with veterans' families, also 
whose burdens are often neglected. Mm -hmm. It's such an admirable story. But back to your story. (laughs) You became a print journalist, something close to my heart. In fact, one of the outposts for you was my old newspaper, the Chicago Tribune, where I grew up. I think we just missed each other. We did, Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I left a couple of years before you got there. Tell me about why you chose to be a print journalist at first and what you took away from that experience that informed the rest of of what you've done. Well, I've always loved to write. You know, I've always loved the written world. Word. We're sitting in an office full of books, and that that would be a happy place for me. You know, surrounding myself with with books and the written word. I in college, I actually had a scholarship from the W from the CBS affiliate in Minneapolis, um, WCCO, as a political um, watcher. You're probably very well aware of yeah. WCCO, and uh, worked in television for a time there, and decided that I really wanted to work as a print journalist because you just had more time to tell a story. You had a different opportunity to wrestle a story to the ground. Yes. And so I wound up getting a job as an um, a intern and then went into a two-year program at the LA Times. I was very, I always say, our, our lady of the editorial has been very good to me. Mm-hmm. I, I started in LA at the LA Times and then came here uh, to Chicago. And I, I still subscribe to newspapers. I, I love newspapers. Yeah, I, I as well. I know. We're, I, we, we are a vanishing breed, my friend. Well, you know, they're, I would say that newspapers are back on the come up again. You know, they're, Well, they're news doing, is on the come up. Yeah. I like the tactile sense of yes. having the paper in my hands. I do too. Yeah. I do too. And I like the accidental discoveries that you make. Yes. You know, as you're, as you're it's, sort of yeah, exactly, moving exactly. through the pages. But I, I also, um, you know, I like that you could, that as a print reporter, I could, I could write a beat. And I could also do deep dive stories. And I was fortunate that when I worked at every paper I worked at, let went me... Went to the Washington Post. And I went on to the Washington Post. Let me sort of dig in and do investigative pieces and mm-hmm. do, you know, impact journalism. Yeah. I, when I worked here in Chicago, they let me um, do a very long series on the Chicago Public Schools. Mm-hmm. You know, and it was it was rich and rewarding and heartbreaking work. And so, you know, I, I think it was harder to do that in television because outside of yes. 60 Minutes and Nightline, at that time, it was really hard to do long form journalism in television. I hadn't. And not, yet you went to television. Yes. And I had not yet discovered the religion of radio. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I was uh, recruited to go to ABC News. And, and it was an opportunity to try something new. Um Don Graham, who was a publisher of the Washington Post, then was fantastic, and he said, "Told you you could come back." Yeah, he yeah. said, "Kid, go try it, and if it doesn't work out, you know, come back." Was and, it? How hard was it to make that? Oh my gosh! Oh, transition it was horrible. It was so. It was. It was. People were very forgiving, but it was really, really difficult. I went to work in network television in the ABC bureau as a Washington correspondent, never having worked in local news. So I had a skill set as a writer, and that saved me. Like, I could write, I could write well, I could write on deadline, and that saved me. But in terms of comporting myself on camera, and... That's a big transition. It is a huge transition, and using your voice as an instrument. Yeah. Um, in terms of just figuring out the mechanics, I mean, I, I have a soft spot to for Wolf Blitzer to this day, because there was a day that I was... And I have, you know, I have a speech impediment. I mean, I have had it since I was a kid, and it rarely surfaces. I mean, that's what is that? I I just as a kid, I my brain works faster than my mouth, and so 
I will start to skip words and my words will jumble and I I, I, I control my it. My goodness, you certainly have recovered no, I, from that. I control it very well. But yeah. if I am really, really stressed or nervous, like my husband will, you know, he can spot it. My mom certainly can spot mm-hmm. it. And there was a day where I just lost it, you know, mm. when I was new to television and I was- On, on the air. It was, we were filing. It wasn't, luckily oh, it see. wasn't on the air. We were filing. Um, it was at a um, one of the Asia summits. It was in Seattle. The G8 summits, mm-hmm. you know, where they all wear the shirts. Yes, and, you yeah, know. exactly. And it was in Seattle, and the weather was horrible. And, you know, I'm a black woman, so in the midst of that Seattle, like, rain, my hair had gone back home, and <laughs> and I looked like, you know, I, I looked like who done it and why. And, and I was just, I was the pool reporter, so I didn't understand really what that meant, that I had to send reports all day and they had to be pithy and they had to be but I was writing these long pool reports like make it short make it fast and then it, it came time to file I can't believe I'm telling the story to you it came time to file and um and I just it was a very competitive environment yeah television those, is those a are, really yes, competitive yeah. environment and so everyone's laughing and no one's helping and it I was kind of the but oh a series my. of bad what jokes it was just and wolf blitzer came up and put his hands on my shoulder and he said, stop, breathe, okay, track. And I started to talk, and he said, no, no, you're talking too fast. Stop, breathe. And I got through it. And I went home, and I wept that night and mm. just got up the next day and figured out you have to learn how to do this. It's yeah. You have to figure out, find people. Everybody can teach you something. Got to know the camera crews, got to know, you know whoever ran the pool, and just figure it out I have to learn the you know it's it's not it's not television I, yeah. it, I'm carrying around the equivalent of a 2,000 pound pencil and I have to figure out everybody along the way has to help me figure out how I can excel in this and I eventually got my sea legs and yeah. I was and I benefited because a year after I went into television my my dearly departed best friend went to work for a competing network Gwen Eiffel oh yes and so we were both in television together supposed to compete against each other but we were both moving into this at the same time and under the table we were holding hands with each yeah, other like that's great you know and at the end of the day girl i had a tv day today you know <laughs> and 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 really honest with each other you know yeah. you need to draw your eyebrows in a little bit more or, you know or, or maybe you need a different kind of trend i mean we were just really honest and 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 having that kind of sister friend going through the journey at the same time was a tremendous gift um yeah. to me this all is a reminder of how much little acts of kindness mean that Wolf Blitzer story, the fact that you had each other, the, you know. And uh, how we all can do that. We all can do that. It costs you no. I'm yeah. sure Wolf doesn't even remember this. Right. You know, he's he, he probably doesn't remember it. I will never forget yeah. it. Yeah. You did find the religion of radio as you... <laughs> You know, you excelled at it. You did all things considered on NPR. It's a huge audience. I mean, people don't, I think, recognize just how large that audience is and how many people that you uh, reach. And you really honed your storytelling skills. And you, you, you have such a gift for it. What makes a good storyteller? Someone who knows how to get out of the way. That you're a medium. You're, you're the vehicle through which that story, a vessel for the story. So knowing how to listen um, and I think paying attention to the smallest of details that say so much um, 
about the larger story. And I, as a storyteller, there are lots of people who do what I do. And so one of the ways that I've tried to distinguish myself is to look at the edge of the frame. Because I think important things happen at the edge of the frame. So if you're only focused on the star character, the primary character at the center of the frame, the person who's got all the, who's holding the lens, who has all the heat, you can miss all the important things that are happening, you know, around the edges. And I tried to bring that sensibility to what I what I did on the radio and and really what I do in everything. But I yes. in the radio in particular because it's such an intimate medium that that there's there's a way you know to do that and. Um, and it's a way to distinguish yourself, but it also is a way to to take people inside the story in a different way. I mean, part of what what you have to do in an in an organization like NPR, which never gets the same respect that the New York Times and the Wash, it should, but it doesn't. You know, it's seen as sort of mm-hmm. an ancillary news um, organization as opposed to a primary source news organization. Yeah, and we're on at an odd time of the day, so. At all things considered, we were on the air from four to six every day, which is a mid-cycle show. So we're not agenda setting like Morning Edition, and then we're not like the last word. So you have to figure out how are we going to report the story as it's still happening. That's the odd thing about being on the air at four. Often stories are still unfolding yes. while you're actually telling those stories. So. The thing that I think distinguishes great interviewers like you is just a curiosity about people. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that's a skill, isn't it? To I have curiosity. A, it is. Well, I think it's 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 vital. If you're going to be a storyteller, as you say, get out of the way and let and and sort of elicit that story. And you've done that so well with this race project, yeah. race card project, I should say. Tell me how that developed, and then let's talk a little bit about what you've learned because mm. as i said earlier i find the whole thing so valuable and so astonishing that six words can can tell you so much but i i too am astonished um because i had no idea that it would become what it has become i i i was getting ready to go on tour um when i wrote the grace of silence in 2010 and i was terrified about going out into the world and having a conversation about race. Even though I knew I wanted to write a book about race. The original idea was to write a book about how Americans talk and think about race. Or don't. Or don't. Um, I had been conditioned to believe that people really don't like to have this conversation. And my publishers were also a little bit concerned. Will people come? Will people, you know, actually engage? And I was looking for something that would... um, would lubricate the conversation, would would make people a little bit more comfortable. And um, and working with my, my little teeny team uh, at that point that were helping me put the book tour together and, and Adrian Kinlock and Melissa Bear, who were also helping me put together a book website, not the Race Car Project website, but a book website, we decided to print these postcards and ask people to distill their thoughts on race and identity to just six words. Six words, because asking them to write a paragraph would be just too much. People would not sit down and do that. And asking them to write a sentence would be not precise enough because they'd write long essays and then try to say it was just a sentence. And so we printed 200 of these postcards, and and a, a, about 30% of them came back. 
And then I got my publisher to print them, and then I printed them wherever we went. We got to know printers all over the country. If I was in Miami and going to the book fair, I'd print them and I'd leave them. And I'd leave them, I'd just, I'd leave them in the bookstore. I'd leave them at the Starbucks. I'd leave them at the hotel. And people, people took the bait. They actually, in the beginning, most of the, well, a good number of the cards were, were sort of fuzzy and aspirational. We call them kind of rainbow and bunny cards. Hmm. Only one race, the human race. Um, can't we all just get along? Those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. But then, very quickly, they came in with real punch. You know, reason I ended a sweet relationship. Um, white, not allowed to be proud. Grandma sent $100 when we broke up. Did my southern grandpa attend lynchings? Mm. And then you realize, whoa, this is interesting. I can't get people to say that inside Studio 2A at NPR, but they'll put it on a postcard, sign their name and buy a stamp and send it to me. And then I realized I have to keep going. And I created a website and then the cards started to come in digitally. And then things got really interesting because of social media. So it drifted into a social media space and then the cards started coming in from, from all over, all the, over world. the place. Yeah. We have all 50 states, 96 countries. 250,000? No, we have, we have archived, we have officially archived um, a number of them, but we have more than 500,000 that have come in. And when I say officially archived, because it takes us so much time to go through each card, because we realize that this archive, long after I'm gone, this archive hopefully will live somewhere and people will be able to come, historians, storytellers, journalists, sociologists, and look at this social tree ring that... That is original source material, not filtered by journalists or historians, where people talk about their lives and perspectives, their memories, their 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 point of view, um, their fears, their anxieties, their triumphs, their hopes about race, in an era bracketed by Barack Obama and Donald Trump. Yes. And so when we archive everything, we go through it very carefully and tag everything inside of it for the archive. So when I want to find cards from um, Arkansas, I can find cards you from Arkansas. You also have gone back and interviewed some of the people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you've been able to drill deeper on on these very revealing phrases. I wanted I wanted to ask you about uh, one of them, a reti- white retired police officer, and maybe this was from an interview. I guess it was from an interview that came off of this. But anyway, there are other cards that speak to this. He said, I can't recall any privilege that I got because I was white. That's not six words. Mm-hmm. That, that mm-hmm. must have been from an interview. I wanted to ask you about this because one of the things that I've been thinking about lately is this, uh, and frankly, the young people here have provoked me to think about it, is this notion of white privilege. And you articulated it earlier. There are things that are palpably true that white people haven't had to confront that people of color have, mm-hmm. many of them having to do with the way the law is applied. You get into these communities, you know, in the middle of the country where the economy is, their feeling you hear from them is, I'm not privileged, I'm getting killed out here, right. and no one's coming to help me, and, you know, poor people of color get handouts, and Wall Street gets bailouts, and I'm sitting here on my own. I don't understand this white privilege thing. And it seems like Trump has really mined that sense of aggrievement and weaponized it in Mm -hmm. politics. How do we understand each other better? How do we get those people to understand our history and what the legacy of that is? 
and the reality of life uh, if you are a person of color? And how do you get the reverse conversation going? Well, you know, it's when you ask this question, I have all these cards going through my head, like a card Mm -hmm. sent in by someone, poor white is the new black. You know, if you go back and you look at the Kerner Commission report um, that looked at poverty in America, many of the indices of, of poverty or the, the, the barriers to opportunity are apparent in rural and exurban America right now. And so people do feel like this notion of privilege, people think of privilege perhaps as a silver spoon, like your advantage, you're on easy street, yes. you're going through life, like like you're on the highway with an easy toll pass, you know, you just zoom straight right. ahead. Exactly. Yeah. And without a real understanding of the, um, the social fabric that was created in this country by laws that gave people certain advantages. And that's a history that is not well taught. It's a history that's not well understood. And trying to force feed people that history is really, really difficult. So politically, you know, one of the reasons I post cards like this, you know, Jim in Sussex, Wisconsin, who says, I'm white and play the price. He believes that because he's white, he has a harder time getting a job because um, there are programs aimed at diversifying the workforce in the factory town that he yes. lives in. Yes. Um, so diversity feels like it's something, if you have, if you have unear- unacknowledged privilege equality feels like oppression yes because suddenly wait a minute the the lab, the playing field is leveled you're used to not having to compete against a broader pool of people and rather than denigrate that we have to understand that i mean there's a there's a there's a and you probably will know this because i can't remember the name now but the the, the famous yale political um, theorist who you know says that politics is is about not actual need but perceived need you know that that if that's his perception, right? That's his reality, right? And and that is something that that has to be dealt with, rather than dismissing that point of view and saying that they're wrong, they're mistaken in their point of view. That is their reality, and so going back to understand sort of the economic framework that led to that. I mean, Jim, it's easy to dismiss him, but the fact is, the man I just mentioned, you know, I'm white and play the price. Yeah. The fact is that. At the factory where he works, you are advantaged if you're if you're bilingual and if you want to move into the management class, because a lot of places now, because of the the changing demographics in this country, to be bilingual is to actually right. be advantaged right. because that's who you're managing and yeah. and so you know I don't have an easy answer for the panacea to this problem, but I know that if you just look across the chasm and say they're crazy, they're mistaken, yeah. they're ill informed, you are not going to win that voter back. And you're not going to bring that person yeah, to the I mean, table to have it, any it, kind of meaningful yeah, conversation. Well, it's it's it, to me, it's much deeper than voting. Although, obviously, there are great consequences to these elections. Uh, mostly, what I feel is that um, it really screams out for the need for wisdom. It needs out, uh, you know, an empathy and the ability to lead a national discussion that's honest about these. Issues and our politics don't often lend. Uh, their politics don't lend itself that. to that right now at yeah. all. And I don't know that it's going to be a national discussion because it's hard to imagine that we're going to all engage in a discussion. But at a moment where everything is so divided, it really, and where we have someone who is gleefully divisive, you know, in in the White House, it requires individuals to step up. 
So who's going to take the place of, 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 of creating a uniting force in a city, in a community, in a factory, on a campus? Mm-hmm. You know, you, there was a time where we could expect that that uniting sentiment would come from Washington, D.C., yeah. from either end of Pennsylvania Avenue. Right. And that is not going to happen. Right. That, that, that's, that, that, even with the, you know, even if there is a change in party in the White House, that may not happen because there will be so yeah. much gnashing of teeth. And, and No, you make a very good point. So who is going to do that? Well, and, I'll give you one answer. However, these discussions, wherever they emerge, I know one person who's going to be leading them is Michelle Norris. And this project of yours is so insightful and and just so rich. And I would encourage everyone to go to your website, which I think is... It's theraceguardproject.com. Yes. Uh, and just take a look and maybe participate. You but have, know that you will be made uncomfortable if you go. Yeah. Well, that, that is a necessary predicate for healing. Thank you so much for being here. You, I could talk to you from now until the cows come <laughs> home, but I'm so pleased to be with you and so happy that you're bringing your project and presentation here to this campus because it's something that needs to be heard. David, thank, thank you so you. much. Thank you. This has been fun. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.